This podcast is created for farmers and powered by Pioneer Agronomy to bring you agronomic insights and proven solutions to fuel forward-thinking farming. Welcome, listeners, to the Pioneer Agronomy podcast. I am field agronomist Jay Zilski, and today's topic is nitrogen management in corn, and more specifically, spring nitrogen management. And, and folks, this truly is one of my favorite topics when it comes to agronomy and corn production. And here's why, is that really second only to weather, nitrogen is the single most important factor contributing to corn yield uh, over the course of the growing season. And so it really is an important topic. With me today, uh, our pioneer field agronomist, Dave Farr, um, Allie Ferguson, and uh, actually Allie Wise. She got uh, married <laughs> sometime back. Allie, how long ago was that you got married? Yeah, not too long ago, but still married. So I'm, I'm, I'm doing so, well. I'm just trying to compete with you guys, you know. So yes, Allie Wise, and then of course, Josh Schaffner. So uh, maybe let's just go around the horn here. And uh, Dave, why don't you share with everybody uh, where you're located and in your sphere of influence as an agronomist? Jay, uh, thank you. I'm Dave Farr, and I'm sitting here in Sibley County, west of Lesseur, and my sphere of influence is uh, south-central Minnesota right now, and I can tell you after the rains we've had the last three, four days, the, the, some of the water holes have just drained out, so uh, feeling uh, fairly positive about this spring if we continue to warm up. Absolutely, Dave. Well, thank you very much. And uh, Josh Schaffner? Yeah, I am. Um... Uh, Zimbrota, Minnesota is home, and uh, I cover uh, that southeast corner, kind of through bluff country there. And um, yeah, looking at nitrogen management, the the management where I'm at is going to vary a little bit different than where where Dave and, and where you're at, Jay. But uh, this should be a good discussion. And uh, Allie Wise, <laughs> tell everyone where you're from. Yeah, so Allie Wise, I live around Mabel, Minnesota, but my territory covers uh, just west of 52, south of the interstate, on over to Austin, Minnesota. Um, so in a way, I kind of bridge the gap between Dave and, and yourselves area and then that extreme driftless zone that Josh mentioned. So kind of have a little bit of both practices, but it's going to be a great discussion today. Yes, and thank you, Allie. And again, I'm Jay Zielski and field agronomist in Mankato, Minnesota, so kind of the heart of south-central Minnesota, uh, Nicollet, Sibley, uh, uh, Scott counties, Carver and McLeod counties here in south-central Minnesota. And, and so uh, as I looked at today's podcast i want to assemble a group of agronomists that kind of represent as josh made reference to here in south central minnesota and southeast minnesota uh, some of those best management practices and such are, are distinctly different uh, and so i thought it'd be good for 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 you as listeners to have a chance to to capture the differences between southeast and south central minnesota and you know one of the things here in in south central minnesota on some of these clay loam uh, glacial till soils is that uh, fall nitrogen is a best management practice and, and although that's already behind us Dave can you maybe just kind of briefly share what those best management practices are if we're going to successfully apply nitrogen for corn in the fall of the year so uh, you're right south central Minnesota still does allow uh, fall uh, anhydrous application uh, and and it really comes under the uh, um, the acceptable but with greater risk uh, category, uh, but uh, it it uh, again it would be fall application anhydrous ammonia with NSERVE, That is the caveat, and they really do want you to wait until uh, uh, 50 degree soil temps or after uh, um, October uh, 20th. Um. Thank you, Dave. And you know I think one of the things that that I happened to observe last fall as I was driving around the countryside is, you know, because of the previous year when a lot of fall nitrogen didn't get on, uh, people were anxious to get some nitrogen on last fall, maybe pressing somewhat less than ideal conditions. I remember quite distinctly driving by a particular field and, and there had been a, a little bit of a snowfall and as, as I went by the field and the guy was applying anhydrous ammonia, I couldn't tell if that was uh, smoke of anhydrous coming up behind the uh, behind the knives or if that actually was a little bit of snow flying up in the air. And, and I think the thing is, um, you know, people may have pushed some less than ideal conditions with those fall applications Okay, now those could potentially come back and haunt them 
in season this year. And so, so Josh, you know, as, as, as people look back, and I know uh, in, in your part of the world, I uh, really don't see those fall in applications, but maybe share a little bit of your wisdom and thoughts is, okay, maybe a guy thought he had kind of marginal conditions that he put his nitrogen on. So now what does he do? Does he just guess this spring and add some additional N because he thinks it was kind of marginal? Or there's some tools in season that they can utilize to make a decision there. Yeah, there's a few different options, and um, you know, nitrogen—it's hard to know for sure. That's always the challenge with nitrogen. Is you know, well, maybe we didn't do the best job. What percent did we lose? What what could we do? Um, you know, certainly there are some tools you could look at. You know, some pre-side dress nitrate tests. There's other thing you could do. Um, you know, even when you know, in some cases, if you did anhydrous, looking at <clears throat> you know maybe some of those areas of the field that weren't as, as as ideal you could do some some in-season scouting looking at hey do we see some challenges does the crop look a little bit variable you know even some imaging you know even some drone flights there's a lot of things you could do to try to you know maybe pick up on that unevenness but you know in a lot of cases if we think you know we maybe did a poor job putting it on um you know we, we kind of knew that going into it in a lot of cases i'm maybe just going to lean to the air on maybe we should supplement maybe it's some spring ams or a little bit of uan as a carrier but I think in any time, if we think we maybe are in trouble or we're seeing some issues, you want to look at it. And in some cases where I even have some spring anhydrous, there's times we got to make some adjustments for some things we pick up on. But um, it's not an easy, it's just not an easy answer, Jay, to that question of exactly what to do in those situations. No, thank you, Josh. And, you know, well, whatever we do, I just want I, I hope people fix things so I don't get called out in the fall of the year to, to answer a question. What the heck happened to this cornfield here? <laughs> uh, so, you know, it, it is really neat. You know, I think about over my career, some of the tools that we have out there to maybe make some of these in-season assessments to, to help with um, some of those decisions that we didn't used to have. So, uh, you know, that's that's fall nitrogen, and so that's behind us. So so look look ahead to this, this spring, and, you know, after a couple of uh, challenging springs here, especially a year ago as far as trying to get uh, corn planted as well as nitrogen applications and such. But but here we are. It's looking, uh, looking uh, optimistic here this spring as far as the early start. And, and so let's go around the horn as far as uh, kind of go down the different forms of, of nitrogen, uh, uh, urea, uh, anhydrous ammonia, and, and UAN as far as those liquid forms. But um, Allie, why don't you start off as far as, you know, your spring anhydrous ammonia uh, suggestions, any precautions you would have with regard to those spring anhydrous ammonia applications for corn? Yeah, so I think we'll maybe just start when it comes to spring anhydrous, just some basic pros and cons between the two. I mean, you look at maybe starting with the downside of some of those applications, it's just we're always at risk, a little bit more risk for maybe some of those uh, more compaction risks out in those fields with those applications just because of the soil conditions uh, that we we were maybe pushing a little bit in some of those springtime windows. Um, And then along with that, depending on your soil conditions, always maybe come some of those crop injury type concerns. Um, but on the, the positive side of things, I think the, the nice thing about those spring applications is you know where you're putting that nitrogen. It's a more stable source of nitrogen uh, in the soil. So when we maybe look at last year's growing season, I think earlier in the season, um, which I mean, I, I'm a proponent of urea applications as well, but those tended to look really, really nice earlier in the season. And then when we got a little later in the season, that's when we came up on some of those maybe shortfalls on the nitrogen side of things. Um, but in the spring anhydrous case, I think some of those fields maybe looked a little rougher early on, but because that nitrogen wasn't as readily available right away, um, it became available when we, when we needed it a little bit, a little bit more. I think another, another thing just to consider around anhydrous is if we go back to this past fall, it's obviously a best practice for us to be utilizing a, a nitrification inhibitor with some of those applications in the fall. Uh, but as we move into some of those spring applications, I think we tend to get a few more questions around, you know, the later we are applying this ammonia in the spring, are we less likely to maybe utilize a nitrification inhibitor? Um, and that's a question that I think comes up a lot. I think you could argue that stabilization of the spring is just as important. I mean, all it takes is for us to get that period of warm and, and moist soils for that nitrification uh, to start to to begin. But uh, just one more thing before I maybe kick it back to you guys would just be those general considerations around as we're making those spring NH3 applications, just making sure that you have um, enough separation between that anhydrous band 
and then your seed uh, to make sure you're keeping that safe. So as a best practice, the, you know, the deeper you can, can inject that into the soil, I mean, if you're getting that down eight to 10 inches down, we know that that expansion zone is gonna be three to four inches. Um, you're gonna make sure you're, you're protecting your seed a lot better in some of those, those cases. Well, thank you, Allie, and I, uh, you know, uh, wholeheartedly agree as far as whenever I talk about anhydrous ammonia is, you know, you, you did a very good job of, of highlighting some of, some of the benefits of being one of the more stable fo uh, forms of end in the spring. And again, the, the, the trade-off with that is that the potential challenges as far as compaction. And uh, Allie, you, you also made reference to you managing some of those crop injury risks and that, uh, that expansion of the anhydrous ammonia beyond the point of injection. Dave, what, what are your thoughts and your suggestions for farmers that you work with with those spring anhydrous ammonia applications to, to maximize safety? And, you know, that all-important question about how many days do we wait between uh, spring anhydrous ammonia applications and planting corn, what kind of advice do you give farmers uh, when they ask you? Uh, thanks, Jay. And uh, in addition to kind of the logistics of spring anhydrous, some of our farmers, because they purchased uh, their anhydrous uh, and were unable to put it on in the fall, they are tied to that product. So there's, you know, uh, there's various reasons that farmers uh, will have to move ahead with that anhydrous. And uh, we know that over the years, some of these guys that have, have generally done a spring pre-plant of anhydrous you know, also have done a lot of tile, so they've they've somewhat managed the soil to make sure they can manage this. And and it, at that point, uh, I, I certainly believe that uh, some of the dedicated ammonia rigs with a shank and uh, you know mole knife type concept, uh, putting it a little bit deeper in the soil and um, maybe a little more separation distance. But also, if we have decent soil moisture, uh, we we tend to. Uh, uh, we tend to uh, mitigate some of those burning results on those young seedlings. Um, however, if it's too wet, of course, just smearing that trench can allow that anhydrous to lift and uh, and cause a burn on some of those new seedlings. So I, I would say uh, separate it, uh, make sure the soil is fit, and um, uh, and then it's, uh, it, it, it's a couple days uh, with moisture. And if it be a little drier, then you're out there about three, four, or five days as far as separation. Well, thanks, Dave. And I think one of the uh, additional comments I always make to farmers as well is that, you know, if you think you're going to be close behind that anhydrous ammonia uh, application that you put it on, uh, ideally a, a slight angle of the row that you're, uh, direction that you're going to be planting. That way you don't run a risk of getting a single row right in the middle of a, a knife track. I think the other thing you mentioned as far as uh, how many days to wait following application, in some cases uh, growers are putting on anhydrous ammonia util utilizing a field cultivator where rather than anhydrous ammonia toolbar. Consequently, they're not putting that nitrogen in quite as deep. And as a result, maybe they want to wait even a little bit, provide a little bit longer window before you come in and, and, and plant corn. So that's anhydrous ammonia. Let's shift gears here now and, and talk about spring urea. Josh, you mentioned earlier you're from southeast Minnesota, spring nitrogen. You're kind of from urea country, so I'm going to pitch it over to you and have you share your thoughts about spring urea applications uh, and, and making them successful in corn. Yeah, we uh, by far our most predominant source of nitrogen is, is spring urea, um, kind of as we get east of, <clears throat> of Highway 52. Um, you, you know, there's a, a few things that are important here, and, and, and uh, we kind of get into you know, managing urea a lot of different ways as we get over here. In some cases, you know, it, it might be conventional tillage. In some cases, it might be reduced tillage. Um, you know, so there, there's a lot of things there. Um, you know, and, and really the, the first thing when I think about spring urea, you know, the number one thing we got to do a good job is uh, if, if we're doing tillage, we got to do a good job with incorporation. I, I think it's probably the most overlooked um, factor r right now. And, and when we've had some, some wet springs, you know, it's really easy to get in a hurry to maybe shallow up that field cultivator. It's maybe just a little bit damp underneath, and it's like, well, let's just scratch it, get it level. And out of our fall tillage is a good, such a good job leveling this stuff. It maybe doesn't, you know, take as an aggressive as a, as a finishing pass as what it used to. But ideally, you know, we want to incorporate that urea two inches, you know, meaning that our field cultivator needs to be set at four inches. And I think there's a lot of situations that the, our field cultivators are more shallow than that today. But that's probably the, <clears throat> the number one thing we got to do is, is really make sure we, we get that incorporated. And then the other thing, Jay, we certainly would like to see, um, in my opinion, more use of stabilizers like, a, like an instinct and 
I think with the amount of moisture we've had in May and June the last couple of years, there could be a lot of value to that. But one of our biggest challenges, Jay, is as we uh, do so much spring application here, we also do a lot of impregnation of herbicides. So that's one thing that um, that balance of do we want to, you know, have that urea and, and maybe our blend be carrying herbicide versus carrying a stabilizer. That's one thing that we're always trying to juggle as well. Um, but, you know, that, that's some, some considerations of, you know, maybe in some cases it would be a better investment to stabilize and maybe look at another trip. But, um, you know, that's kind of a balancing act of what we need to do there. In a lot of cases, it gets pretty wet when you start putting a stabilizer plus a herbicide on there. I know with some of the newer formulations, maybe in time here, we'll be able to start doing uh, both of those at the same time. But, um, you know, those are all important. <clears throat> and then on the, the no-till side of it, you know, our biggest thing that we try to do there is, um, well, number one, make sure our pH is good because when you, you do have a pH that's off, when urea is sitting on the surface, it, it can be more volatile than a well-managed pH situation. But we actually really try to take advantage of, of the colder days. Like even now where we're early April or late March, if we get some mornings where it's frozen um, on that no-till ground where you don't want to track it up, um, it's a really good opportunity to get some urea out there where the temps are below 50 and, and hopefully we can kind of get some freeze-thaw cycles, maybe a little rain to work that urea in for us. But um, those are probably the biggest things that we, we try to juggle here with urea, where you know, urea is probably you know, 75% of our end source for a lot of our corn acres uh, over here uh, on a given year in the spring. So, yeah, that's kind of my take of some things to really be looking at to, to manage it appropriately. Yeah, thank you, Josh. And, you know, to your point about the incorporation depth of urea, you know, I always like to share a story here about the importance of that incorporation. And I think the thing is, over the years, it's interesting that meetings, uh, or it'd be plot tours, crop shots and such over the years, and have farmers come up to me and say, you know, I don't know what it is, Jay, but we've never been able to make urea work on our farm. And I always kind of wondered, well, you know, in the back of my mind, uh, you know, I, I, well, I'd nod my head. Uh, and, and then in the back of my mind, I'd kind of be wondering, okay, well, really, why is it work for other people and not this guy? And, and then several years back, uh, Dr. Franzen up at the North Dakota State University came out with a very interesting um, study, and they were looking at uh, depth of incorporation of urea, and, and the thought was that, uh, as you mentioned, that ideally getting it incorporated to two inches de deep, and if you don't, if you just barely scratch it in, your potential for losses are greater than if you allow that urea just to sit on the surface. And, and people are always you know, concerned about, letting uh, leaving that urea on the surface without say using uh one of the products a uh, urease inhibitor one of those products such as agritain or cortevis pinnate max to help stabilize it and so i thought that was very eye-opening and had me wonder okay these folks that i've talked to over the years maybe they haven't been as aggressive with their incorporation in the spring of the year that's why i had those losses and that's why maybe urea didn't work as well for them uh, as, as well. So uh, uh, very interesting, Josh. And, and you know, con continuing on, I think that other source of nitrogen we're looking at is, is liquid nitrogen or urea ammonium nitrate, okay, 28% or 32% nitrogen. And I think, you know, those end up being oftentimes some of the favorites in season for side dress applications because uh, they're readily available to the crop or very readily available, the most readily available source of end of the crop. But conversely, they're also the most readily available to some potential losses. And so that's always one of the things that makes me nervous. I like UAN as a tool uh, for a portion of the end, whether it be as a, a carrier for, uh, say, a herbicide application or potentially as a side dress application. I get real nervous when I have growers in some cases where 100% of their end program is one shot of UAN, whether it be 28% or 32%, it always makes me nervous of potential risk they have for loss over the course of the uh, growing season. So don't know if uh, Josh, Dave, or Allie, you have any uh, additional thoughts or comments with regard to UAN as a source of, of, of nitrogen for corn before I move on talking about some corn-on-corn corn considerations. Uh, Jay, just, just a comment. Um, when you look at university data, uh, it, they they generally interchange uh, ammonium forms and urea forms in their research, and they, they don't uh, really differentiate uh, as far as spring application. But the one source of nitrogen, if it's put on en masse or en bulk pre-plant spring, that they will differentiate in performance, it will be the liquids, the 28s or the 32s. And there's there's a lot of data behind that. So that's, that's kind of my only comment. I mean, it, it's a great form of nitrogen. 
especially when you're using it pre-plant uh, and post or uh, if you're splitting nitrogen uh, applications. But as the full bulk pre-plant, it has proven, uh, at least in the south central Minnesota heavy soils that can denitrify uh, pretty readily, it's, it's, it's proven to be just a bit of a, a, bit of a yield hit. Oh, that's uh, appreciate you, you sharing that. So you actually have some data behind my own personal thoughts. That's great, Dave. And, you know, along those lines, I'm, we're going to shift gears here and, and talk about corn on corn. And, you know, Dave, I'm going to have you talk about some additional considerations for corn on corn management. But before I do that, this is my opportunity to plug our other podcast uh, where we talked about corn on corn management and, and, and Josh, did we had some technical issues? Is that one going to be uh, posted or are we going to have to rebroadcast that one? I, I think the consensus was that's going to be a, a re-record. Uh-huh. I see. Well, uh, and again, if, if, uh, I seem a little bit lively here this morning, that's because I have already had two coffees in me and it's one of my favorite topics here is nitrogen management, but I'm going to pitch it over to Dave in, in that corn on corn podcast that we attempted to record the other day. You made some interesting comments, Dave, about some of the research, uh, into streaming, uh, a, a band of liquid nitrogen, say zero by two or two by two in corn on corn and how that helps temper some of the impacts of some of the challenges corn on corn with immobilized nitrogen. Dave, can you, can you share a few thoughts with regards to, uh, some of that pre-plant in, in, in corn on corn and also that zero by two or, or two by two, uh, streaming of, of some liquid nitrogen? Yeah, uh, originally uh, started to look into some of the research uh, uh, performed at Wasika, and the basic premise of that was in a corn-on-corn system, how could you, uh, in a mulch-till corn-on-corn system, uh, get yields that were approaching a moldboard plow corn-on-corn system? And the answer was uh, anywhere between 10 to 13 gallons of a combination of uh, UAN, 28 or 32, and then ATS, sulfur. And that was in a two by zero, the way they did it. Um, Just looking through uh, some recent information by Emerson, Dr. Emerson Nafziger out of Illinois, he was talking about the same thing, and he talks about having 40 to 50 part per million nitrogen in the upper soil profile at V2, which is vegetative two-leaf corn. And he talked about incorporating 12 pounds of nitrogen, which you would imagine to be uh, urea form uh, into that 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 rooting zone into that planting zone would would accomplish 40 to 50 part per million, or in a two by two or a two by zero, which uh, is off to the side on the surface two by zero or two inches off to the side two inches down, 30 to 50 pounds of nitrogen from the liquid forms, and we're, we're, whether that's put on with the planter or if that's done pre-emerge or even very early post uh, with the secondary tool. Um, there's getting to be a little more, in, you know, a little more interest in that in taking some of the bumps out of corn on corn production, and I think that gets back to really hitting uh, all of the necessary windows in in corn production, which is that early growth, early vegetative growth leading up to tassel, uh, holding the kernels uh, that are just pollinated for two weeks, and then also grain fill. We really don't want to miss any of those windows. Uh, and with these tough nitrogen years and tough springs we've had, that seems to be one method that's been holding up. Yeah. Nope. Dave, thank you. Thank you very much. Appreciate your comments on the corn on corn, because I do think that's one of the challenges for growers. And I know, Josh, in your area, you have a lot of long-term corn. you got somewhat different soil types than us, and actually significantly different soil types than us in south-central Minnesota. Maybe don't have quite some of those challenges that we do here uh, on our kind of soils. But uh, I just want to continue on. I know I already said that I'm extremely optimistic about the fact that we're going to be in the fields planting corn this year without any delays, and it's going to be a wonderful year. I have already predicted that we will also be done planting soybeans by Mother's Day. So it's going to be a great spring this year. But, okay, it's a dose of reality. What if that doesn't happen? And in last year, you know, we had some significant delays in the area. And, you know, one of the things that as, as agronomists we always say, okay, there comes a point in time when okay let's if you don't have your nitrogen on already just plant the darn corn 
and worry about the nitrogen later. And, and so, um, you know, Allie, at, at what point do you make that recommendation to growers in, in, in how, you know, what do they do? Well, yeah, and that's a tough decision. And like you said, I mean, we're hoping that we don't get ourselves in a situation like that again this year. Uh, but the first thing that comes to my mind, I mean, I think it's nice that we just walked through the differences between anhydrous and urea earlier. I think if you're someone that's maybe tried urea in the past and you didn't like the outcome, I wouldn't, you know, bat an eye at maybe taking taking a look at that again, just because when you get front loaded with so many anhydrous applications um, in the spring, and if you can try and spread out that workload a little bit with some of those urea applications, that's always a nice option as well. But you know, if we were to get in a point, you know, just playing devil's advocate where we would have a delayed start to the planting season or, or get delayed in season and you have to, to choose between applying nitrogen or planting corn, I think as an agronomist and all of us as agronomists, you can tell me if you disagree, but our answers would be, you know, if the conditions are fit to plant the corn that you're going to go ahead and plant that corn, corn as long as you're past, you know, maybe that crop insurance date. Um, when we look at just the, the bushel advantage to planting early versus later in corn, it's a significant difference. So, you know, there's just a lot of yield potential there that we'd hate to pass up um, because we're trying to make a nitrogen application instead of plant corn. So regardless, I think there's several different nitrogen source, sources that would be available to allow us numerous opportunities to apply nitrogen after we've planted, planted that crop. Uh, whether that may be being a top dress, side dress application, application. Um, and we talked about this, you know, just previously too, but just using that liquid UAN, 28% or 32, uh, taking that weed and feed approach it is a nice option as well to just get some readily available nitrogen out there uh, to provide a good source uh, for that crop. And uh, Josh, thank you, Ellie. Josh, you, your thoughts and, and your opinions, at what point in time do we say, you know what, don't worry about the fertilizer application plant corn. We've got some other options. And, and what are your preferred options? Yeah, my take on that is if um, <clears throat> if you have a field that's fit and um, the air machine isn't there, I'm you just plant the field. That's as long as I'm waiting. I don't care if it's April 15th or May 5th or May 15th. If it's ready to go and they can't get there, I just don't think you can waste um, any time anymore with, with some of the challenges we've had of, of weather and, and knowing the importance of early plant. I think... Um, I don't think I'm going to, if, if it's fit, I'm not going to wait at any time. I guess that's just my take. And uh, Josh, I no, appreciate those comments. And, you know, and I think that's really where, I mean, you know, we have had people, I know when I first started with Pioneer, one of the things folks talked about in the past, and that's before we had RTK and some of these other uh, technologies available, going in and blind side dressing, even after a mm-hmm. field had been planted, that folks would go in and, and, and go ahead, blind side dress anhydrous ammonia. We also hear folks talking about it top dress applications and uh you know i think a lot of times when i think of top dress applications oftentimes that's a a urea application over the top of a crop that's been planted and you know, i think the thing is at least in, in my opinion if if you choose to plant corn and then you're and you don't have any nitrogen down as a base any pre-plant nitrogen whether it had been fall or spring pre-plant you know, I think Dave made reference to those various windows that you want to hit. And, and that, that first one is, you know, by the time you get to about V6, which is six leaf collar corn, that's one of the first points in time where you begin to see that first uptick as far as N applications. And let's say it's, it's really bad conditions, been challenging trying to get some nitrogen on. Uh, prior to planting, just know that when you want to make those top dress applications, obviously as soon after planting as possible, and and for sure uh, want to get it on before that V6 application timing um, is as well. And, and a lot of times we start talking about those top dress applications or other application timings. I know Josh, uh, you oftentimes have have made reference to. Uh, you know, utilizing some sulfur along with your nitrogen application. And you kind of have your magic number of, as far as that ratio of sulfur to nitrogen. Uh, why don't you share your thoughts on, on those things? Yeah, uh, you know, sulfur, extremely important and, and something I think we've all watched over the last, you know, 10 years. Um, <clears throat> you know, the corn requirement, you know, the demand for sulfur, the, you know, cleaner, less pollution, other things we need sulfur and extremely uh, important nutrient for <clears throat> for for corn and, and kind of a macronutrient today, but I like to keep every application of nitrogen within like a I like to see a six to one ratio for every time you're applying nitrogen. I'd like to see 
about a pound of sulfur for every six pounds of India you're applying. And that can vary a little bit maybe as you move west uh, and uh, soil organic matter climbs up a little bit. That might, might change that a little bit. Um, but I certainly like to see that ratio, whether it be with your bulk spread, if you're doing some some two by two or, or two by zero starter side dress. Um, if I'm applying nitrogen, I'd like to have a little bit of sulfur uh, with each application. I'm gonna kind of rewind just a little bit, Jay. I'm, I was just yes, thinking sir. about, Dave had some really great points about, um, you know, some higher volume, you know, two by zero um, UAN uh, ATS, you know, maybe dribbling that out the back. And, and um, I, I'm, I just want your opinion on this because as I made the rounds this winter with customers, I do see more and more growers, um, you know, kind of going back to putting on a higher volume system back on that they're dribbling out the back or there's a lot of people putting on the new gauge wheels that they can actually, um, you know, maybe put 10 gallons and split it on each side of the road and have that kind of like a two by two or two by zero on each side. But, um, you know, when we talk about, you know, at what point do we just got to go and not worry, and worry about the nitrogen later? I, I just want your opinion. I, I, I really like that that UAN ATS out the back and I think it get you know the roll cleaners really get the residue out of the way and you kind of keep that stuff really um, away from the residue but I'm just wondering moving forward um, what's your take uh, you know compared to the low volume pop-up compared to the two by two I have some growers that do both which I love that to me that's the Cadillac doing low volume pop-up and some two by zero or two by two but if you had a choice of one or the other today with how things are evolving would you rather have high volume UAN ATS or three, four gallons of, of 1034 in, in furrow. And I, I'm starting to almost think if I had good FOSS levels, I'd rather have the UAN and ATS mix. Dave, I think he's pitching that to you. And, and I think uh, to tee you up, I know one of the thoughts that I always have in some of the conversations I have with growers about doing like you say, Josh, boy, a Cadillac would be able to have some uh, starter fertilizer in, in, in the row along with a, a banded application and oftentimes in the conversations I have it comes down to logistics to attending to that mm -hmm. planter to keep that volume of product but but Dave I think you had some interesting insights you shared the other day as far as when okay if I had to choose which way am I going to go yeah that that question has been posed by farmers the last year or two uh, at a fairly high rate um, some are doing a pop-up and the additional two by zero or two by two. Others will, uh, they want you to help partner with that choice and because they're going to do one or the other. And then reviewing soil fertility and looking at their FOSS levels and everything else. Uh, if they're high enough, um, it's pretty much hands down. We're, we're switching them, using those systems and switching them over uh, to a, a nitrogen sulfur um, in a two by zero or two by two. So. Yeah. And the other thing I like there, Jay, if we do that, you know, that where Allie talked about when do you just go, it's nice if you do have maybe 30 pounds of N sitting there. Um, if you're just going that it does really maybe give you a longer window compared to maybe if you're sitting out there with only, you know, three pounds from, from pop-up or something, it does give you maybe a little bit more time that that second application or, you know, that rescue application is a little bit more manageable. No, I, I agree with you on that. Uh, Josh as well and, and you know, another thought I had is as you mentioned that is as well is that you know that timing let, let's say that you're not able to put that zero by two uh, band on and you go ahead and plant corn you don't have any down uh, nitrogen down and of course for me you know I'm going to tell growers to prioritize their corn on corn to make that top dress application first rather than the corn on soybeans just you know because so you can't get it all done at once so if you're going to prioritize make sure you put those corn on corn fields at the top of the list to get that mm -hmm. uh, top dressed or, or you know surface applied or blind side dress nitrogen on uh, soybeans after that so we talk about uh, banding some of that fertilizer. We talk about those top dress applications. Uh, shift gears here now and, and talk about a, a planned side dress application. You know, it seems like that's something that in recent years has, has gained a lot of momentum. I remember uh, a number of years back, people talking about, oh yeah, you know, with some of the challenges with fall nitrogen applications and uh, some concerns overall about safety with anhydrous ammonia that we were going to shift to more uh, you know, side-dressed applications of nitrogen. And, and my thought back then was, you know, the size of the farming operations nowadays, I don't think that's ever going to happen because we're just not going to be able to keep up. We're not going to be able to do it in a timely enough fashion. And that was an oversight of my, on my part, and I, I, you know, failed to judge the potential as far as uh, machinery and equipment to get the job done now, scaled up to the size of the farming operations we have nowadays. And so, 
I'm getting questions from growers and I'm kind of rambling here, but my point is I'm getting questions from growers real often say, you know, I haven't been side dressing any nitrogen at all. I hear a lot of talk about it. Am I missing the boat? Is this something I should be doing is side dressing nitrogen for my corn? And I think especially in the last couple of years here when it's been really quite wet through much of the growing seasons, it's some of those side dressed applications are really sh definitely showing some advantages. Dave, you as a guy that actually farms, you know, the other three of us, we don't farm, you farm and you do some side dressing and nitrogen. Can I share your thoughts? Are, are people missing the boat if they're not side dressing uh, their nitrogen and corn? So I'm, I'm going to uh, direct my comments to south-central Minnesota with these heavier soils. Uh, and I'm careful when I work with growers about prescribing side dress um, uh, because of the logistics and getting over the acres. I also look at fairly large uh, data sets that were done in the past, probably previous to the last five years. And it was, it was pretty tough to tease apart um, uh, pre-plant nitrogen applications and their value over planned splits uh, unless we had really heavy wet years. Now I would say the last three years have caused um, more people to look at uh, the, uh, the side dress application uh, for the bulk of their nitrogen, especially in these heavy south central Minnesota soils. But I also want to review the uh, best management practices for both southeast and south central Minnesota and the not recommended category is side dressing all nitrogen when corn follows corn and I would say side dressing all nitrogen when corn following soybeans is the same caution in the sense that uh, they do want to see something feeding that young plant prior to the side dress whether it be that two by zero two by two we talked about or some liquids over the top and so I would say the trend in this area is at least we have some people seriously looking into larger volumes of nitrogen in season. Um, and then and then if we coach in that direction, I make sure that there is something to feed that young plant as well, Jay. Oh, thank you, Dave. And Josh or Ali, your thoughts and your observations as far as trends towards uh, side dressing nitrogen in corn? Are, are folks missing the boat by not side dressing nitrogen? I guess I, I think they are. I, I think we're in, I think even when we get to Southeast Minnesota, we're, we're seeing more and more of it every year. Um, you know, in, in some cases, like Dave said, it's maybe not always easy to find the yield advantage, but if you do look at end use efficiency, um, you know, the split application is going to be better. Um, I, I think nine out of 10 times it's going to be an improvement. And even from a, a stewardship situation, you know, as we get to Southeast Minnesota, um, you know, Jay, we, you know, stewardship's a big thing. You know, we have a lot of uh, steep fields and a lot of, you know, erosion potential and, and other things that I think anytime we can split these applications up, it, it's a really uh, best management practice. And in my caution, any grower that's maybe not side dressing, you got to ease into it. Don't ever flip your whole operation in a year. You know, start with, you know, a couple, a couple fields and, and get comfortable with the logistics. Um, you know, the last thing you want to do is, is convert all your acres and then maybe you know, have a tough weather, you know, situation in June and you want to get back out there. But, you know, we're seeing more every year. It's exciting to see. And I think we'll continue to see more um, in the future. And, um, yeah, hopefully in time we'll, we'll have a, a majority of the acres that do see cider's nitrogen. And I, I'm certainly um, a big supporter of it. And hopefully um, we'll see more. And hopefully we can get better in use efficiency as a result long term. Well, along with that, I guess I just have a quick question on your opinion. You know, if a, if a particular customer is interested in, working more towards some of those planned side dress applications like you mentioned i mean you wouldn't recommend flipping their whole operation to that type of a setup but if they are picking a couple of fields um, do you have percentages in mind in terms of you know what percent do you put on up front and then what mm -hmm. percent would you like to see them uh, planning for in season in terms of their nitrogen yeah and that's a that's a really good question ali and and i'd like to get everybody's thought on that but um, in a lot of cases, I at least like to split it up maybe 50-50, 60-40. Um, it may be debat uh, debatable, but the importance of late nitrogen, it, it's, it's huge. We've got to have a good amount of nitrogen there as we get close to VT. And, you know, if you're still putting 80% up front, I think you're maybe missing some of the opportunity. But I like to split it up. And the reason I still like to have some of that on the front side, especially if you're just getting started, 
<clears throat> is just giving yourself maybe a little more flexibility on, on that application window. Um, you know, Jay and Dave, I don't know where you, you press your producers on that, but um, I'm usually somewhere in that boat. I'll share my thoughts first, and then we'll pitch it over to the farmer for his for his opinion. And 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 uh, I'm anxious to hear that. You know, Josh, as I uh, as he asked that question, you know, my thought was, and I tie it back briefly to your comment about a person thinking of diving into side dress nitrogen uh, applications, say for the for the first time, and, and and how deeply do you commit? How how big of a commitment you make? And and so I think. You know, it's if you have a base amount of N down, that buys you a lot of time to get that supplemental N on, uh, that supplemental side rest application on. And, you know, in my mind, I keep thinking, well, you know, at least a third of their total N on, uh, if not more of their total N on, is that, is that side rest application. And uh, the other, my, my other recommendation, depending on, what they have down for base is don't get too cute with that side dress application. And, and what I mean by that is uh, over the years, I've seen guys want to wait till the very last minute, right before lay by, you know, right before the rows close, that's when they're going to put their uh, side dress application of nitrogen on. And then one of two things happen and they both have to do with rain. Either it rains like a son of a gun and you're, you're out of the field for two, three weeks or so at a critical time of the season, or it stops raining. And uh, now, granted, we've got some, some application methods nowadays that can maybe do a better job of weatherproofing it, but if it doesn't rain, you know, those are the situations where you have some disadvantages. And so to me, you know, I typically think, you know, by, by you know, for sure by mid-June or by the time we get – you know, right around uh, between V6 and V12, I want to be sure and have some of that nitrogen ahead of that big uptake. But it's going to depend how much somebody has down as a base. But, but Dave, you know, you, you farm, you use side dress uh, nitrogen. You know, how much do you allow for side dress? What do you put down as a base? And, and what's your magic number as far as a percentage minimum that you look at as that side dress application event? Jay, um, I, I agree with both you and Josh on the on the percentages pre-plant and side dress. Um, but when you start looking at the efficiency of the banded nitrogens uh, at planting or or pre-plant, uh, it really opens up that window. I know in our situation we're putting on thirty-eight to forty pounds of nitrogen. Uh, that's coming from both the UAN and the ATS. And uh, with fairly extensive research, including my son's master's research on the farm, we're holding, you know, with that band well into that, uh, probably V7, V8. Um, so, so it's opened up that window. Um, but but uh, so we're putting a, the, the bulk of it on uh, as a side dress. And then, of course, variable rate. However, I mean, the concept I want farmers to remember is that... Um, you need to feed that young plant early. You don't want even that early emerging plant, that V2, V3, V4, V5 plant, to have a bad day in acquisition of nitrogen and sulfur. And then remember that once you get it uh, to that, you know, that V6, V7, V8, the water balance uh, starts to shift towards, you know, the, the plant and the root system is powerful enough that the transpirational draw is high enough so that the corn actually controls the water balance from there on out and then the nitrogen is moving via mass flow uh, with water into the plant and that's that's where we want to think about the concept of promoting good early strong growth to get it to the point where it has strong transpirational draw and then it starts to control its water balance and then almost any application method after that uh, with with rain to move surface applied or even banded nitrogens below the surface start to move into the corn plant that's kind of the philosophy i use well, thank you, Dave. And now I'm itching to find an opportunity to insert the phrase transpirational draw into some of my conversations with farmers. So I may need to uh, talk to you to make sure I got it exactly straight. But I appreciate you sharing that, Dave. And, and I think, you know, you 
indirectly referred to it. Josh was talking about how much nitrogen he's going to want to have as a total percentage as, a, as that side rest application. And it really comes down to, in you know, some of the research and pioneer scientists had worked on it as far as, you know, things are changing with modern hybrids to, to previous hybrids. And in back in probably my early days with Pioneer, back in the early 90s, maybe the hybrids we had back then didn't take up as much as their nitrogen after VT, which is Josh, you referenced it, Dave, you referenced it to it as well, but just under 40% of the total nitrogen is taken up by the plant from VT or tasseling on. And so how we can manage our systems to ensure that we have enough in there, 40% of that total in, and when I first heard that, my my first thought was, you know, how could we possibly expect if a person was putting all their nitrogen on with a fall application that coming the following August, like what, nine months later, that there still would be 40% of that total land available for that crop yet from VT and on. That's, boy, you have to have an awful lot of confidence in the fact that you're not going to lose uh, much nitrogen to, to, to fulfill those needs. And so... Oh, appreciate those thoughts and comments. Um, we're, we're kind of coming on the home stretch of the podcast here, but just want to briefly talk. We haven't really talked about rates much at all, specific rates. Uh, and in Dave, one of the tools that I hear, uh, you know, bantied around out there is the MRTN, maximum return to nitrogen models. And Dave, can you um, briefly describe, you know, how those models work? Maybe give a, a quick example, and then, of course, since I'm the moderator, I get to share my opinion on MRTN. Yeah, thanks, Jay. And I've got a couple of charts I printed out this morning, and I would encourage the farmers to Google Iowa State N rate, uh, and and it will uh, it will certainly come up. And and there is specific data to Minnesota. These are very very large data sets that get updated every year with additional trials and i just want to use a couple of examples uh, uh you get to choose your nitrogen source and the cost of that nitrogen and of course the commodity price of corn and then the other major decision is the previous crop corn or soybeans so in the example of three dollar fifty cent commodity corn following soybeans and we'll use anhydrous which is 33 cents per pound of nitrogen and the application rate or average is 133 uh, of pounds of nitrogen. Now, the range is 120 through 148, so you could say about 150 pounds. And um, you have to remember that across that range, there's probably only about a bushel difference uh, according to the data sets. Now, if we take that same situation, anhydrous, with $4 corn, uh, with 33 cent nitrogen, you're looking at a uh, average rate of 138 pounds of nitrogen, and then the the profitable range goes from 124 pounds of nitrogen to 153 pounds. So it picked it up a little bit. Now the other example would be corn on corn at 350 corn with using urea, and urea is a 41 cent per pound. Now you're looking at 160 pounds of nitrogen with a range of 147 to 175. Let's jump up to $4 corn, corn following corn with urea. And now you've got 165 pounds of nitrogen with 151 to 180. And again, we've already talked about uh, even the best management practices are divided by Southeast, South Central, Southwest Minnesota. And yet we have recommendations that span across Minnesota. And so uh, use this as a guidance, but then really tailor it to your own situation. Thanks, Dave. And so as, as you look at those, you know, help me out here, uh, Dave, with regard to those uh, particular recommendations. So is that, a, is that considered to be an in-season application, uh, a spring application as opposed to a fall application? Does, how would you adjust those numbers for, say, a side dress nitrogen application? You know, that you're, you're doing some pre-plant and then a side dress application. Yeah. Well, that is interesting. And, I, and I've reviewed that question specifically with uh, some of the nitrogen researchers uh, in the past. And I didn't really get as much of a break on the overall nitrogen rate by using a side dress as opposed to pre-plant. 
Um, and, and of course, uh, they, they really don't want to see you overwhelming the system in, in pre-plant fall applications with a lot of nitrogen because a loss mechanism is a loss mechanism and you will still lose that much more if it's already in the nitrate form. So I would say there's a little bit of efficiency you can count on by in-season applications, but not more than five to 10 pounds over, over all these recommendations. That's very interesting, Dave, because I think a, a lot of people, their perception will be it, it may be grower, uh, greater than that. And, you know, anytime, and here's my opinion part on MRTN, but, I, you know, I, I think as, I, as I've looked at these numbers over the years, uh, I, I've, I've tended to think that the low end of those ranges tend to make me a little bit nervous and you know i always sometimes i i you know I, i'll use the phrase you know nitrogen's too cheap um you know we want to be conscious about environmental concerns but if anything you're maybe going to err on making making sure you got a little more than enough and so for me i tend to err on the side of being probably on the higher end of those windows and i think that's that's how i tend to look at it but i also think for a a grower uh, in, in their situation, say if you have um, poorly drained uh, soils uh, in your field, maybe you don't have a field tiled or maybe you have some lower organic matter soils, those are situations that are going to probably tend to air more towards the higher end. And say you have well-tiled ground in soils that are capable of, of large levels of mineralization of nitrogen, probably then you can kind of scoot down to that, uh, you know, lower side of that, that range of uh, recommended rates and so um Allie Josh before we kind of move on to kind of a grab bag of a couple of topics that I've jotted down um any other thoughts or, or insights on some of those nitrogen rates yeah I don't have a lot to add it um you know I've um done a lot of fertility consulting through my career and it, you know it's a little bit of an art. It varies by operation. There's not a magic number. Every grower is a little bit different based on their equipment, their tillage situation. Um, you know, I have some growers that are probably getting a bushel of corn on, you know, 0.7 pounds of N, and some it's taken closer to a pound of N, and, and some of that's just their practices and what's available. But I don't like to throw numbers out there. It um, I take it one operation at a time, and and um, they're all kind of unique. I've, I've yet to meet two farmers that do the same thing, and. Uh, I don't think there's an end rate uh, that's going to be the same for for two different operations. It, uh, there's a lot that goes into that. So you know, Josh, it's it's interesting, and I, I really encourage farmers to do this. I've done this a, a number of times on the combine, uh, as I've been having combine rides in the fall years. You you, you mentioned those any efficiency rates uh, levels, and, and and I think it is interesting. And, and you know, Dave and I started our careers where it was always uh, you know a pound. Uh, pound in for a bushel of corn and and always start to see those efficiency levels uh, increase dramatically and I always encourage uh, farmers to you know as we're riding combine say okay so let's look at what you averaged for your yield on this the previous field that you happen to be in how much nitrogen you put on and then calculate them for their any efficiency uh, level and and yeah I think, I think a lot of guys would would be surprised at least previous years when we had good crop yields you know, we were seeing real commonly, you know, less than than 0.9, even some cases, uh, you know, hovering right around either side of 0.8 uh, pounds per bushel of corn. Now, challenging year like last year uh, wasn't wasn't quite so good uh, as well. So I think it's an interesting thing for farmers to do. And I think this is actually an opportunity for me to to plug something that will be coming up uh, this fall uh, through uh, Pioneers and Corteva's Granular Insights is the fact that uh, we hope to have up and running uh, following harvest next year to have a actually be able to generate a map of fields showing that end use efficiency, which I think will be something uh, very interesting for growers to, to consider as, as well. So we're going to transition here. Just kind of this is the home stretch talking about a, a grab bag of, of topics. And, you know, there have been, we, we talked about urea, but we never mentioned ESN, okay? Uh, environmentally smart nitrogen. Uh, that's an encapsulated nitrogen. And, and so I'm just going to pitch it out to the three of you. Um, you know, anybody have some strong feelings or personal observations with ESN and corn? Uh, Jay, ju just um, l logically, it, it sounds great. And, and I think 
in the past and continuing, we're steering ESN as a percentage of the nitrogen load, maybe on coarse soils where we have a, a you know, the loss mechanisms are a little higher uh, for leaching. But um, some of the data that's been generated in spring application against urea, even in wet years, has has really not been that convincing as far as you know the most important thing to farmers at the end of the year which is yield so um again i i think maybe more research needs to be done uh, and there are places to use it but i, I would not uh recommend it um uh, without more research as a as the full boat uh in our heavier soils in spring application based on some of the data we've seen at this point you know, Dave, when ESN first came out, I, I was I was really excited at about the concept uh, because in my mind, for growers who aren't set up to side dress nitrogen, that uh, I dubbed my own term virtual side dress application. In that, you know, if it if it works as 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 advertised, that it releases gradually over the course of the growing season, then it'll be great. Uh, gosh, you know, for guys that can't side dress, it's going to be a great tool. Um, love the concept. I know there's people been doing some work as far as, you know, it, it's not 100%, but there's some ratios, whether it be, uh, you know, 30% of the the blend with their urea. Uh, Allie, Josh, any any thoughts or personal experiences with ESN before we move on to our next topic here? Yeah, I've um, I got a lot of experience with it. Um, it uh, the product concept is is great. Um, there's a couple challenges with it that that's probably maybe just holding back its use. The one thing I do like about it, you can physically watch it work. I mean, certainly if you have a guy that applies it and you go out there. 10, 12 days later and dig around, you can visually watch it working, which is, to me, always one of the fascinating things about it. Um, the biggest challenge we have with it right now is just the price gap between ESN and urea is way too wide, um, and especially in this economic time. And, and in a lot of cases, I'd like to see more of it used, but I'm really struggling to pencil it out right now. Um, in, in some cases, we're maybe doing some 70-30 blends of it. You know, I'm using 30% of it, which I think is good. And the only call, other call-out I have to it um, is in side dress situations or reduced tillage situations. This stuff really likes to float with water. So where I got a lot of hills, I really try to avoid it uh, in situations where it's not going to be incorporated. Because if you get a heavy rain, uh, it, it floats like a boat. Yes, I've uh, I've seen that. I had that call to my attention as well. So appreciate those comments. I think Josh, you know, the thing I heard you say that that's kind of echoes what I have heard too is uh, roughly about a third of that blend with urea being ESN. It's it's balancing um, economics and then efficacy, if I can use that word, and, and in terms of, of yield, it seems like start approaching closer to 50% blend of, of ESN in there. Uh, we may not be releasing enough of that in soon enough. And, and so, you know, that's the, that, that's, that's the black box out there that we don't know, okay, when exactly is it going to become available to the crop? And it's going to depend a lot by, depending on the, the growing season. And so here a lot of times people settle in on about a third of that uh, nitrogen uh, as as that uh, ESN and, and blended in with the uh, with the urea and so uh, just really the last thing here uh, you know recent years there's lots of excitement um, at least from the marketing side of people that are selling some of these biological products and uh, with some claims to help corn fix nitrogen or more be more efficient with nitrogen. Uh, Dave, uh, I know you had a trial on your farm last year. I remember I flew it with my drone, and there were some real interesting things I saw out there as far as some strips. I didn't really know what I was looking at, uh, but maybe you can kind of share what you folks found on your farm last year with uh, some of these products. Jay, uh, the project started out last spring, and in, in both you and I and other agronomists were being asked questions about these uh, these biologicals that are being marketed uh, that are said to stimulate the growth and function of bacteria that go on to fix nitrogen in the corn crop. And so um, I think the Pivot Bio product and Proven N is probably one uh, that's out there. Uh, we weren't able to get that. We did try the Azotic Invita product just very quickly. Um, 
uh, I'll give you the executive summary. But we ended up doing three nitrogen rates, 40 pounds, um, um, 90 pounds, and 160 pounds corn after soybeans. The field was tiled every 50 feet in 2016. So it's a good field. Um, and then on each one of those nitrogen rates, we did a with and without uh, the Invita product. And uh, so that's the, that's the premise of the uh, trial design. And the yield data uh, was interesting. And who would have known that nitrogen was important to grow corn? And so the 128 uh, or the 40 pound nitrogen was 128 average. The 90 pound nitrogen was 187. And the 160 pound nitrogen corn after soybeans was 245. And that was highly significant on the nitrogen. We started to throw in the Invita. The average yield uh, was 190 bushel with Invita and 182 uh, uh, with it, and without was 191. So we saw a little bit of yield decrease. Wouldn't expect that. I would just say even if it was par, um, but at each of those nitrogen levels, regardless, we did not see an increase with that product. Uh, and we will probably go on this year to uh, maybe research the other product intensively like this. Okay. So this was replicated four times and randomized. Uh, so that was six treatments uh, uh, replicated four times. So it was 24 strips. Well, thanks, David. I appreciate uh, you sharing that. And, and of course, uh, you replicated it on, on your farm, which is, is great that you do. And and I'll be anxious to to hear what you find evaluating one of the other products this this year. And and I think you know probably, you know, from what I hear you saying and, and your observations is uh, and, and Josh made reference it to it earlier as far as people going into side dress. It's like okay, ease into the, something like this if you're interested in taking a look at one of these products. Ease into it and evaluate it on on your farm, and 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 hopefully we'll have others looking at it as well that we can can share some of uh, kind of a consensus as far as what we're seeing. You know, we always tell people, Dave, that you know you can't make a, a decision based on one year and one plot location. Uh, you replicated it, but I mean, I, I think what what you share is that based on your experience this year, there isn't a compelling advantage to say, yeah, I'm going to go all in and do it. Um, but you're going to look at another one, uh, another one of these biological products for this year. So appreciate you sharing those thoughts. And, and really, um, before I, I provide my closing comments, I have three key things I'm going to want to say. But before I do that, I'm going to go around the horn. And, you know, Allie, what is the thing that you're itching to tell people about nitrogen as we bring this uh, podcast to a close? Well, I actually wanted to share, I mean, I felt like we talked about uh, quite a lot of good information today, but I wanted to share something that I learned here today, and that was that we shouldn't get too, quote-unquote, cute with our side dress applications from you, Jay. I thought that was a nice line, but in all seriousness, just keeping top of mind that we want to make sure we have that that plant fed early, but then also, and Jay, you shared this earlier, just the fact that, you know, less than 40%, or just short of 40% of nitrogen is still taken up post-flowering. So I think when you start to to visualize that in your mind, it, it makes it a lot um, easier to maybe look at some of those si planned side dress type of applications, splitting those applications with a base plus approach uh, to nitrogen. So those are just my final final thoughts okay. of the day. Thank you, Allie. And, and Josh, what are you itching to share with folks before we close out the podcast? Um, I'll cover a lot of ground today. Uh, don't forget the sulfur with the N. Um, I want to throw that out there. And um, I, I think really... You know, sometimes things come full circle, but um, I just really want to encourage growers to be, you know, think outside the box, think about where nitrogen management's going. Um, I, I think it's, I'm really getting to be a fan of, you know, some 2i0 or, or some of the new systems to bring UAN and, and ATS back on the planner. I know that maybe slows us down a little bit, um, but the data is intriguing and, and I really like the look of it, especially for corn on corn acres. Thank you, Josh. Dave? Jay, I'm itching to say that the economics are a little bit tough in cropping right now, and we need to focus as agriculturalists and farmers on what I call the big rocks, hybrid selection, water, too much and too little, which if we don't have irrigation is certainly a factor, and then nitrogen. And there's two of those three you can control, your hybrid selection and your nitrogen management. Uh, so, so start thinking about what it means to in most environments regardless of how rough they are and i know we've had some rough ones where we haven't even been able to get into fields to accomplish uh, 
uh, supplemental nitrogen. But, but taking nitrogen and controlling that factor in most of the environments that you farm in and taking that one off the table as a variability. So again, back to the big rocks and really dialing down on uh, uh, what you can control. And I believe one of them with uh, some research and some equipment and some commitment is nitrogen. Well, thank you, Dave. And, you know, Allie, what's that phrase, you know, who put a quarter in you or something like that? I must be referring to, like, is it a jute box or is it a juke box? I don't know if it's a K or a T, but, you know, you said it, so now I'm going to tell you the story about getting cute with the nitrogen. It'll be a quick one here. So, uh, Josh and, and Dave and Allie, I, I, I had a grower uh, a couple years ago, and he's got a base rate. He usually puts down a base of about 90 pounds of nitrogen um, in the spring of the year with a planned side rest application. And uh, so it was the uh, first week of June in uh, 2018, and he said, well, Jay, what do you think? You know, we got the corn sprayed. We got the beans sprayed for the first time. You know, gosh, it seems awfully early to be side dressing in. And I said, you know what? Don't get cute. Get it done because there's two things that can happen. Either it rains or it doesn't rain and uh, sure enough you got all but one field on and then after that um they proceeded to get believe it or not in the month of june that year between then and early july in 2018 they had over 20 inches of rain in their neighborhood so we're really putting to test that base rate of that 90 pounds of n and only about the they finally were able to get in the 6th of july and that field that they hadn't gotten in was starting to show a few signs of hunger as far as uh, needing that that side dress nitrogen application. So my my point is in sharing that story is just the fact that you get that base rate down, you'd be surprised how much time it might buy you in the event that you have some adversities weather wise. So um, that's my uh, that's my little two cents considering you put a quarter in the jukebox. So uh, just to send us some closing comments here, and, and actually Dave spoke to it as well. I led off the podcast talking about making reference to um, Dr. Fred Bilo from the University of Illinois, and, and he shared a number of years back, and many of you have heard of the seven wonders of the corn world. And number two, is, after weather, is nitrogen. And Dave kind of stole my thunder because we can't control the weather, but we do have control over our nitrogen application and management. So that's, that's number one. Uh, second, we talked about, you know, if planning gets delayed, and of course I predicted Mother's Day we're going to be done this year, but just in case we're not, um, just know that if corn planting is delayed, or if, if we get delayed uh, with planting corn, corn gets the priority over putting that nitrogen on. Uh, and, and then uh, finally here, you know, we talk a lot about nitrogen uptake over the course of the growing season. I made reference to this the other day in the podcast about corn on corn. But, you know, Dave mentioned a Google search. One of my favorite Google searches when it has to do with, with corn is just put into Google, corn nitrogen uptake graph. And Google search to pull up the image. And it helps you understand what we've been talking about. And Dave made reference to hitting the various windows over the course of the growing season. And you can see how much N yet is taken up after uh, VT. So uh, those are my final thoughts. The rest of you had one. I got to share three. Um, but just, uh, Josh, before I close out the podcast and we say what our Twitter handles are, we know Dave has yet to get one, but Josh, where can people, I mean, I guess if they're listening to the podcast, they already know where to find the podcast. But anyhow, just as a reminder, maybe they can share with others, how do you find our podcast? Yeah, a few ways, and it's evolving. We're going to have a new podcast site soon with new jingles and the whole shebang. It's going to be a really a We're going to have deal. jingles? Uh, new jingles. We're going to have jingles. Uh, but a couple places, uh, podcast.pioneer.com, or uh, we all tweet them. I'm at Josh Schaffner. I'll let you all share your handles along the way. Allie, your Twitter handle? I'm at Allie G. Wise. And... I, Jay Zilski, am at Seed Zeke. So Zeke is spelled Z-E-K-E. And, and Dave is yet to get a Twitter account, but uh, hopefully he'll step up. So uh, with that, uh, gosh, I want to thank you all for joining us on today's podcast. Be sure and tell your friends about the podcast. And, you know, let us know your thoughts, suggestions for future podcasts. So thank you very much and good luck this spring. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Pioneer Agronomy Team. 
be sure to visit pioneer.com backslash podcasts to access additional episodes and learn more about our extensive on-farm data and innovative digital tools that are fueling forward-thinking farming.